What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We're going to talk about a couple things today in this episode. We're going to talk about democracy. We are also going to talk about uh, COVID and the Omicron wave. You know, whenever whenever someone says, oh, we're going to talk about democracy, that always, it's, it's from one viewpoint, it's such a generic anodyne thing that I, I, I often still feel like we're going to, it's, it's going to be some you know, insubstantial conversation because, you know, who, even people who are against democracy say they're for democracy. And it's, 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 you know, just kind of a common totem in, uh, in American civic culture. Obviously, as we know, um, it is fairly contested at, at, at this point. And uh, so there is a lot to talk about. And we're going to we're going to get into that, you know, just in the last few days, uh, President Biden gave this speech down in Georgia on the threats to democracy, the, the to the republic that we face right now. And that is tied to this new push for some version of the For the People Act in the Senate. And again, For the People Act, this is the consensus democracy protection legislation that has been in the mix all year long, you know, that we've been talking about. That's, that is that. Uh, And then we also have, you know, we're still coming off uh, the anniversary of January 6th and uh, the insurrection and and all this kind of stuff. So we're going to get into that. And then we're also going to talk about what, you know, I think, I think it still depends to some degree where you are geographically in this country how you are experiencing the Omicron wave. There's some. There's the beginning of some evidence now that we are just finally coming off the the wave, or at least that it's plateauing in the New York City area. And I and I think there's a there's sort of a there seems to be a kind of a common trajectory. I think in the Washington D.C. area, in 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 the Boston, you know, Boston metro area, New England, um, you know, basically the Northeast. I think you know New York may be a little bit ahead, but you know, kind of all in the same all in the same basic uh, wave. And if you're in a part of the country that has not kind of hit this yet, uh, wow, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. And, and, and certainly, um, certainly my experience is that, you know, from what, I mean, the first of all is, you know, you've, you've, you've gone the whole pandemic and you know, some people who've had COVID, a lot of people who, who've never had it. And then all of a sudden, like everybody has it. Like over the course of like a week, everybody has it. Uh, it's it's affected my family now. Not in, not in any 
you know, not in any bad way, everything's fine, but you know, it's kind of everybody suddenly getting it. And, uh, you know, the, what everybody says, whether it's because uh, most of the people I know are vaccinated or that there does seem like it is it is generally mild or all that kind of stuff. It's it's, you know, milder in some ways, but just that thing. And if, if you're in this part of the country starting, you know, something like 10 days ago, suddenly everyone has it. And uh, I will say, you know, just anecdotally. If you're still one of those people who has not gotten a booster, get a booster because, you know, there's a lot of science to back this up. But I have seen just anecdotally in my in my own friend set, the people who I don't know anybody who's who has a booster. And again, I'm not saying it, it, it happens to, to no one. I'm just saying, in, you know, in my kind of social circle, the people who have been boosted, who've gotten COVID have been pretty, you know, it's been pretty mild. It hasn't been too much for them. And I know a few people, you know, young people, uh, you know, young, like young, young, you know, under 30 who are vaccinated, but not boosted. And I know a few of those people, they were like fucking wrecked for a week. And, you know, I'm sure these are still, these, these would still be considered mild, moderate cases in the broad sense. They weren't hospitalized. They obviously didn't die. But, you know, the difference between having what you, what, what in the old days we might've considered like a, you know, a mild cold, Versus like a bad flu where you are just wrecked for a week. So, you know, get your booster shot. Obviously, if you're, if you're, I, I have to imagine that, that, uh, you know, the listeners to this podcast tend to be people who are vaccinated. Obviously, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. I mean, what the fuck? What are you thinking? Um, but if you're not boosted, seriously, get the booster. It actually, you know, it makes a pretty big difference in terms of how you're going to spend a, a week or 10 days of your life. So, we're going to talk about both those things. And we're also going to talk about, Something that in some ways strings these two things together, and that is that uh, my co-host, Kate Riga, has been, has been looking at the court challenges, Supreme Court challenges, to the, uh, there's not just one Biden vaccine ma- uh, mandate, there's a couple different ones that use different parts of federal law, feg, uh, federal, regula- you know, the federal regulatory structure to mandate vaccines for different groups. And uh, that obviously connects to COVID, but it also connects to the larger breakdown of sort of the function of the federal government, particularly at the legislative level, that to a great degree, what happens or does not happen in this country is a matter of what the president does unilaterally and what the Supreme Court allows the president to do unilaterally. So, you know, a lot of different things uh, factor in there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we, one of the features of this, of this period in our history is a, a corrupt Supreme Court majority and a largely corrupted federal judiciary that to a great extent now makes little pretense about operating from existing precedent or even decisions that emerge from a consistent philosophical or interpretive framework to make judgments. The, 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 the main hermeneutic seems to be, does Joe Biden want it or not? And do Republicans want it or not? And that's kind of it uh, with, the, with the current federal judiciary. So um, 
Not a good, not a, not a great thing. Let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Temperatures are dropping, leaves are falling, and the sun is setting halfway through your lunch break. But for everyone on Team Cold Brew, it's still iced coffee season. If you're a proud year-rounder, it's time to put on your mittens, fill your tumbler with ice, and top it off with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew. With regular and decaf options, you can finally enjoy velvety smooth cold brew all day, every day, even in the depths of winter. Ready to save every shiver get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate Riga, what is, uh, what's up? So yesterday we had President Biden's big, you know, kind of uh, voting rights filibuster speech in Georgia. That was kind of the event that was going to kick off this big voting rights push. You know, in some ways they had linked it to the January 6th insurrection, but this was a big moment because for months, the refrain from activists has been, Biden just doesn't have his heart in this. You know, he's not pushing for voting rights the way that he is for infrastructure, for his economic agenda. And he hasn't given a speech really dedicated to the subject since the one he gave in Pennsylvania, I think last summer. So it's been a while. So the speech had a lot of scrutiny on it. Some activist groups boycotted it because um, they're angry at the inaction. And I think it was the strongest speech we've heard from him, perhaps in general, definitely on this topic. You know, he kind of pulled out the stops, um, was very pointed in his criticism, framed everything in a historical kind of uh, context. And now we're waiting to see what the Senate does. Um, President Biden... I just learned um, from a a senior aide is coming to the Hill tomorrow to attend the senator, the Democratic senator's lunch. Um, And Schumer's promised a vote on rules changes by or on Martin Luther King Day, which is next Monday. So we're kind of waiting to see exactly what the strategy is going to be there. But like the story's been all term, it all comes down to Manjin and cinema. Uh, and, and in some ways, Schumer seems to kind of be expectation setting. He attended um, an event for the Center for American Progress last night where he said, you know, I don't want to delude anyone. This is an uphill battle. These two senators do not want to change the rules. So in that way, you know, we're kind of back where we've been before, but with a lot more Biden interaction than we've seen in the past. So what do you think of his speech? Uh, you know, I, I thought it was fine. Y- you know, I, I, as you say, this comes down to those two votes. And one of the, one of the conversations that, that the Democratic Party and the parts of the party that are most involved in voting rights and democracy protection activism has been that, uh, yes, it's kind of going nowhere. But as you said in your introduction, Kate, that, uh, you know, Biden has not prioritized it. He's He's been, I'm not sure I totally agree with this, but the argument has been he's been kind of at best vague on the filibuster. You know, he's not, he's not kind of crusading against it. And he's not, uh, he's saying democracy protection is important, but he's not focusing on it the way that he is on Build Back Better and blah, 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 blah. And if he would only, uh, you know, bring the power of the bully pulpit online and and focused on this, that's what's going to be necessary to, you know, to break everything free. And I have always been skeptical, frankly, of that premise. Uh, I, I think it is just 
I think I think people don't fully understand what the power of the president is is certainly in such a polarized period, right? In in different eras in our history, with less polarization, when the president kind of you know uh, uh, breaks in on normal programming and said and says, "Hey, this is critical. This is absolutely important." That's gonna that's gonna shake everybody up. But every but it doesn't shake people up because everybody's already kind of on uh, on their sides in 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 the big uh, American political polarization, and you know. This isn't this isn't Lyndon Johnson. And when I say it's not Lyndon Johnson, it's not that, you know, Joe Biden isn't up to that challenge. Maybe he is or maybe he isn't. But he doesn't have 70, 70 seats in the Senate, which which uh, Lyndon Johnson had. Lyndon Johnson had, you know, in, in the high 60s to I think 70 at one point in uh, 64, 66 and, you know. Whatever, and I and I think one of the reasons that that uh, the White House has been reluctant is you don't want to th- put everything on the line and then lose because that just makes you seem weak. You know, it's it's what is that thing? You know, it's better to be assumed stupid and you know stay silent and be assumed stupid than rather than you know speak up and prove it or whatever that you know whatever that phrase is. is similar thing. People kind of see he's weak, but you prove you're weak. So I think it was great. Uh, but I'm still kind of waiting to hear like, okay, is there some, some, something happened here that, 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 uh, Joe, Joe Manchin is in a different place now or, or Kirsten Cinema or something like that. And I, and I've wondered whether, um, you know, is, 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 is Manchin gonna, uh, relent here since he already kind of destroyed the president's, you know, fiscal policy agenda. Is he going to like throw him a bone? And, you know, cause, and, and frankly, I kind of wonder if that's why, uh, the White House did this because they need to get some wins on something. I mean, he really seems to. I mean, I, I can't even. I, I'm I'm almost uh, I'm almost ideologically opposed or temperamentally opposed at this point to, to paying attention to what's happening with the Build Back Better thing because it's it's like it's like being toyed with or something. Uh, so I think it was great. Uh, I'm not sure if it matters that it was great. Yeah, to some degree, I think the whole Biden can change things premise serves certain invested groups. And that's why we keep hearing about it. You know, it it serves reporters who are trying to keep the storyline alive and write a story that's not just voting rights push continues, mansion and cinema are the obstacles. And I think it also serves activists who are looking at an impossible, depressing, potentially calamitous situation and trying to find the chess piece that hasn't been used yet. And that just leaves them with Biden not being full-throatedly in support of this push. So they're channeling a lot of their energy onto him, which I think is understandable because what's your other option? You know, you can leave a message with a mansion and cinema in turn, (laughs) you know, that's, that's kind of all that's left. So I understand it. And to some degree, I'm kind of of the mindset now of, there's not a ton more for the administration to lose at this moment. So, you know, I don't really see Biden pulling pulling his punches on the voting thing as keeping, you know, helping him maintain a lot of stature that he would lose otherwise. I think this is kind of a dark period for them. So they right, might as right. well try. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I've been listening to everything Manchin's been saying and he clearly has a reform that's stuck in his mind, which is getting two thirds of the people present to vote for something rather than two thirds of the whole chamber. He's brought that up in every interview he's done in the last two weeks, you know, which is something. But the thing that's not clear to me is that 
he often in the same breath says, and that's something Democrats and Republicans should be able to get together on blah, 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 blah. Right. The same kind right. of just, I don't, I don't even think you can call it naivete at this point. I think it's more akin to like when white people say, I, I don't really understand the racial dynamics here. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that kind of stuff. You know, just using ignorance as a, a cover for having to do any work or have any responsibility in the matter. Yeah, so. I, I don't. It's 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 very. I mean, for what it's worth, I actually think even that minor reform, if I'm understanding the mechanics of it, would be a fairly big deal because the real key with the current filibuster, and this is something it's always important to remind people because it's not automatically clear. It's not the minority does not have to get forty seats on the on, on the floor. The minority literally does not even have to show up. They can all be out of town and the majority still has to get 60 seats on the floor. So the minority has to do nothing. There's no pressure on them. There's no pressure to be on hand. And at least, again, as I understand that, if you need, if, um, if it's two thirds of the people, what is it? Two thirds of the, of the, of the senators actually present. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in, in that case, in theory, you could say, okay, okay, Republicans, you know, head out on break. And then say, we might call all the Democrats back on short notice. And then there's, you know, maybe there's only us and five Republicans and we'll go to the floor and we'll do it and then we'll pass it. And that way you get a lot of pressure on, the, you know, because then it becomes a thing where the majority can can keep everybody off balance and be looking for a moment. Can we can we find a moment where we can get, you know, it's just us and we'll push it through. That actually is a big deal uh, with Manchin. Like, who, who, who knows what his the I have no idea. I, I think your 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 analogy is really is really quite a good one because it is that kind of not so much feigned ignorance, but just sort of chatter. Like I don't want to do it, and you just like wah 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 wah. You know, kind of like peanuts, the adults on peanuts. <laughs> wah 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 wah. You know, just it doesn't. None of it matters. I I, I have no idea, and uh, yeah. I mean, because the thing is, if he's down with that reform, super, you know, it's much less, it's not as far as people would like, obviously, but that is a far cry better than nothing. But the thing is, if that's tied into Republican buy-in, then it's nothing. It, it yeah, means nothing. It means nothing more than saying, I support the For the People Act, but I also support the filibuster. That's meaningless. You don't actually support the For the People Act then. You know, and meanwhile, we've got cinema saying nothing because, and I know I say this all the time, but it. I really don't think it gets enough airtime, which is that she does not talk to reporters in anything but very controlled settings with like pre-selected reporters to do interviews that have from every outlet who's gotten one come out in this cinema's not apologizing to anyone, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, she, her she's terrible. She is she's a bad senator, and she yeah. is she is not honest with her constituents. And um, I don't know what her uh, deal is exactly, but your point is really right. I mean, for all the things about about Joe Manchin, he's he's available. Yep. You know, I think you mentioned to me, uh, not you know, just in in our in our uh, uh, private exchanges, that he's he has reduced he's reduced his availability to one. Uh, gaggle or scrum a day just for COVID reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not constantly talking, but he's talking to people constantly. Yeah. And uh, she has, she's probably as much an impediment as he is, but she's, I mean, when was the last time even anybody even talked about her? 
right? It's it's kind of he's that that was I still don't know what the story was with you know his temper tantrum about allegedly being singled out, which he wasn't. But I mean, yeah. Yeah. I have no idea. And I and I kind of I do think I will say this. It's important to hold a vote, even if it just ends up codifying what we think we already know, because not holding votes has allowed these two. I mean, th- this is this is why there's some institutionalist types who are kind of like you need to get back to regular order. Regular order, when you have bills, you mark things up. You have a whole pro- whole legislative process with hearings and markups and votes and votes and votes, and everybody sees what, what you're doing. But the way we do things these days, when everything has broken down, is that you, you know a mansion is the impediment, but he actually hasn't voted against anything. And he's never actually said, I oppose this. I'm voting against the Build Back Better Act because I don't want it to pass. It's all like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying, I'm into it. And, and there's just squishiness and lack of accountability. So with the filibuster thing, they should have them say, yeah, I'm voting to keep the filibuster in exactly this form. And like, you know, yeah, like uh, you may be saying like, oh, great, Josh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll feel better after that happened. <laughs> but you should feel a little bit better because it just puts everybody you know, that's what democracy is about. What's your position? Codify it. Make it explicit. Make it, you made a decision, you made a vote, and it's permanent. It's on the record. And we'll, everybody can kind of draw their own conclusions. Squishiness is the, is the enemy of, of parliamentary democracy. Really. And it's also, we've just reached a point where it's kind of like, okay, what's the other option other than putting them on the record, right? It's these kind of prolonged backdoor negotiations yeah. where we get like little trickles and Manchin comes out and says, you know, I'm, I'm talking to everyone, I'm, I'm open-minded and nothing changes. And it's kind of, we've been doing that for a year at this point. So I agree with you. I'm, I know, I understand why Schumer hasn't wanted to hold this vote. I mean, it's embarrassing to be kind of sabotaged by your own party. But there's got to be a button on this in some kind of way that either, you know, that perhaps gives the administration the final sign to be like, the Senate is no longer really a player in governing and we got to figure out a way around it or some other something else to do with the rest of the presidency because it's not going to happen. You can't buy mansion and cinema or it would have happened already. So, you know, what is what's plan B? No, it's at, at a certain level. And I mean, for me, we've 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 passed this level. They're just wasting our time. Right. You know, we, we've the whole country has spent or at least the, the political country, the people who sort of, you know, really focus on politics and certainly the people who, who live and breathe it. We've we've been we've been kind of, you know, going through this cycle for a year now, you know, and kind of like, you know, you don't want to you don't want to um, you don't want to let go of something like the Build Back Better Act and its various, you know, various possible permutations or or uh, the For the People Act. But at a certain point, you're just being you're just being played with. You're, you're just, you're, they're just making a fool of people, you know, to keep talking about this, where it's almost like you expect that, that, uh, you know, Joe Manchin goes back to his office after, you know, he has the scrum reporters go out and kind of like, well, Joe Manchin said this and Joe Manchin said that. And you kind of expect he goes back to the office laughing at everybody. 
because he knows he's not doing anything and he's just toying with everybody. Now, I, I you know, again, I, I've, I've sort of, I've, I've, I've lost patience with trying to analyze what, what this guy's deal is. Who cares what his deal is? His deal is clearly not passing either, you know, any of these things. And um, I can say that categorically and confidently. And if he wants to prove me wrong, go for it, dude. Right. I'd love it. I'd love to be proved wrong. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I think this is, this is a good segue that kind of you know, paralyzed Senate and taking Congress out of the equation as a member of, you know, the governing body of our country. Um, and, and talk a little bit about the Supreme Court, which I've been doing a lot of reporting on lately. So late last week, we had two vaccine mandates from the administration come between come before the court. One of those is a a vaccine or test mandate from OSHA for all employers of of over 100 employees. And then the other is from HHS. It's a a mandatory vaccine policy for all healthcare workers who work at facilities that participate in Medicare or Medicaid, so that get federal funding. And the reason we were interested in this case is kind of twofold, both Facially, because obviously vaccine mandates are quite important in this, you know, this especially during the spike of the pandemic, which is overburdening hospitals and sickening healthcare workers, et cetera. But also, and what I've been absolutely fixed fixated on these past two weeks is what it could potentially mean for the Biden administration's agency authority going forward. And while that might sound kind of weedy and kind of procedural, you know, administrative law stuff, as we're describing, there could be nothing more important than what these agencies will be allowed to do, given that the Senate is utterly paralyzed right now and that the Republicans are favored to take back the House, if not also the Senate in 2022, which basically takes all legislating off the table for the rest of Joe Biden's term, which means all he's going to be able to do is whatever he can do with the regulatory and rulemaking power of the federal agencies. So I was watching these arguments with a real specific eye on what the justices were going to say and how their attitude was going to be towards the exercise of agency power. And what happened was more than I expected because these vaccine mandates were cases where they didn't necessarily have to get into that side of things. You know, there was enough kind of technical procedural, you know, what is OSHA's authority? What's their statutory, uh, you know, power, that kind of stuff that they didn't necessarily have to get into those broader questions. But they really did. I mean, in particular, you had Chief Justice John Roberts saying this is just a, quote, workaround for the administration. They're doing these mandates through various agencies because they can't get it through Congress. So shouldn't we be looking at this as one comprehensive exercise of federal power? And, you know, Neil Gorsuch echoed the same thing. And it was very forceful. And, you know, it's kind of the culmination of what's been happening on the right wing of the judicial world for years that really sped up during the Obama administration. This move to yank back power from federal agencies um, and to really shift that power to courts made up of people who are not elected. <laughs> you know, it is not a democratic body by any means. And we've now kind of reached the point where we've got probably five votes on the court ready to absolutely curtail all federal agency power. 
And probably under the guise of saying, well, shouldn't this be Congress's power when they know, as well as anybody else, that Congress can no longer govern in any meaningful way. And this is really, really going to come to a head with a case I've been reporting, doing some reporting on that's going to come up in February, which is a case about the EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gases. And that's the one that experts think if there's going to be some huge kind of cutting off of agency power in the knees, it will probably happen during this case. And that could prove, you know, absolutely damning for the Biden administration for the rest of their term. I mean, I, you know, it's just for just for listeners, the without getting too deep into the uh, case law and administrative law, a broad framework that we've had for many decades is that that the standard or one of the standards is a reasonability standard. If you know, if if the law gives agencies uh, a mandate to you know regulate in certain areas, it's not a matter of if the court agrees with the decision. It is it a reasonable decision. Is it, you know, a reasonable way of putting a law into effect of, you know, uh, taking stock of the facts available about whatever you're trying to regulate, et cetera. And one thing that is clear is that the court has dropped that. They have, even if it hasn't been uh, embodied yet in a new, in a specific uh, kind of, you know, groundbreaking decision, it's clear in a lot of these cases, they're willing to just say, I don't think you should do this. That's not how that's not basically I wouldn't have done that. And I'm the judge. So I'm going to I'm going to say you can't do it. And that that is a pretty big deal. And that is that's, you know, as you say, given that the authority of the courts is essentially unreviewable and not accountable to any democratic authority, that is a pretty big deal. And it was it was striking to me in these oral arguments uh, on these vaccine mandates, having uh, members of the court basically spouting from the bench what are essentially kind of anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. I think it was Neil Gorsuch saying, "This isn't really about you know this is about control. This is about and this is about about power, about controlling people. It's not about public health." Well. <laughs> You can you can you can disagree with these mandates, and I think there's even you know it's funny I I uh, there's a federalist you know kind of non-Trump federalist society lawyer who I engage with sometimes on Twitter, and when the administration first came out with this hundred employee mandate, I think his his point was that broadly this worked in 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 you know constitutional federal jurisprudence terms. They were probably going to need to tailor it a bit more narrowly to basically, you know, is the argument, the anti-mandate argument would be 100 employees is just to, is, is just a totally arbitrary number you've come up with. You know, the rationale for a mandate is much greater for in-person work versus people working from home. So you're going to need to tailor it more specifically to goals that are part of OSHA's mandate. So basically, it's legit. You're going to have to kind of fiddle with it a bit to, you know, to tailor it a bit more narrowly. Uh, but it seems like the actual the, the Supreme Court isn't isn't, you know, they don't even think that they're just they want to throw out the whole thing. And the other thing that really strikes me is I can see some argument that 
there's an argument kind of like, okay, this is not really, and this is, I think, what what uh, Roberts was getting at. You can you can kind of apply OSHA here, but this isn't pro- this probably is not what the authors of the law exactly had in mind. You can say, hey, you're kind of bootstrapping it here. That's that's you know that's reasonable. Again, court's supposed to give a fair amount of deference to the um, federal government on this. But what's really striking is the other mandate. Which is about basically, basically, it's saying if we, if we, the federal government, are paying for you to give medical care to American citizens, if we're footing the bill, we need you to have your employees vaccinated. I, I don't even care about what the what the jurisprudence is on this. It is absurd that the government cannot require that. It is absolutely the case. It is unquestionable that this directly impacts the health of the people to whom the services are being provided. And it's the federal government that is paying the bill. It would be sort of like, I mean, the federal government has all sorts of standards, like you have to have an antiseptic uh, medical facility, you know, if you're providing like dialysis to people who with kidney failure. You've got to keep everything sanitary if we're paying the bill. That's just obvious. But and it's really kind of the same thing. If we're running, if we're if we're funding your healthcare facility, your you know kind of uh, assisted living facility, or what they used to call old folks' homes, everybody's got to be vaccinated. That's just obvious. And and so that thing is kind of like, I mean, you're paying the bill. You de- you you define what the product is. That's not even. That's really not even. Um, that's really a principle that goes beyond even even the issues we're talking about with with federal power mandates or regulatory authority. Why 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 are we going to pay your bill if you won't even if you won't even uh, provide a medically safe facility? It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and not to mention that Medicare Medicaid patients are people who tend to be older, sicker, and poorer than the general population, all of which puts you at, you know, greater risk to suffer more from catching COVID. But the real, you know, the real shift that was so demonstrated during these oral arguments is that previously we had decades where the attitude was agencies are staffed by experts and these, you know, often technical matters. And the idea was Congress gives these agencies power. The courts are there when there's kind of an an ambiguity or a question of the power that's been conferred. But for so long, the deference was to the agencies. They know what they're doing better than courts do. You know, and in some of the lower court litigation of these mandates, one conservative judge said, essentially, we don't want to kind of replace the public health experts who are making this decision. You know, we're judges. That's what do we know about public health kind of thing. And that was the attitude for a long time. But it was startling and and alarming to see the right wing judges on the Supreme Court kind of take this attitude of if there's any ambiguity whatsoever, if Congress didn't explicitly give the agency, you know, this specific power then you assume that they didn't give them that power. And then the court's going to decide whether or not they have that power. And even when they did say it specifically with the healthcare case, you know, HHS has given the power to regulate the health and safety of its patients. I mean, it's, it seems very, very explicit. That still might not be enough. It seemed like there were enough judges leaning away that that would get shot down too. And so 
you know, all of this just paints a picture of a bench that is not going to let the Biden administration's agencies do a whole lot of anything. And that's, you know, as bad as the vaccine mandate cases, tenfold when we get to this EPA case, if they maintain the same posture, given that Congress hasn't passed a piece of major environmental legislation since 1990. So prospects are not exactly great there. It's, you know, uh, a few decades ago, there was, and, and this is still, at least in the abstract, a good argument or a reasonable argument. Uh, the argument coming from conservative uh, judges and conservative legal academics is that you are moving away from democratic accountability if Congress just says, oh, you know, new agency of, of good stuff and being nice, we are empowering you to do good stuff and being nice and go to it. And then you get a bunch of, you know, technically kind of a point, you know, technically working at the behest of the president of the United States, but in practice, big bureaucracies that are making, you know, kind of the substantive decisions of government. And, and the Congress is basically abdicating its role. And in that context, you want to say, okay, we need to keep the Congress involved because the Congress is, is what is elected by the people and they need to, they need to uh, get the let out and pass laws and not just, again, kind of abdicate in that sense. That is, not a, that is a reasonable argument, at least in concept. There were always many proponents of that argument or people pushing that argument that in fact wanted to fundamentally hobble the existence of the modern U.S. federal government, which goes back, depending on when you want to date it from, you know, 120, 130 years or so, and basically make it not a workable proposition to kind of, you know, kind of uh, clip its Achilles heels, basically, and make it uh, make it not able to work. And this is, you know, during the Trump administration, this was, you know, Steve Bannon always with his slogans, you know, to destroy, what is it, destroy or overthrow the administrative state. And that that's kind of what that is about. And and clearly that is, you know, when you're saying that the federal government can't do things that when when the when the federal government is paying for citizens medical care, if it can't say you've got to have a safe facility. Well, this isn't about democratic accountability. That, that's just you're trying to kind of break things. And and this is why one of the reasons I, I refer to the current uh, uh, Supreme Court majority is corrupt, because uh, this is a corruption of the of the system. And that's, you know, that's where we are. Yeah. Now, for for something a bit different, we're going to talk about the attempt to keep Madison Cawthorn uh, a representative from North Carolina off the ballot in 2022. And that's kind of, I don't know, and that's kind of interesting way that they're going about it. Basically, it's a group of 11 North Carolina voters who have lodged a legal challenge to the state board of elections saying that Cawthorn should be ineligible to have his name on the ballot in 2022 under the 14th Amendment because he helped incite an, an insurrection. So they're represented, uh, among others, by a former chief justice of the state Supreme Court. Um, and it, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's, it's uh, you know, it's not a lawsuit per se because it's before the state entity. Uh, well, you know, it, if technically that's probably... 
I'll, you know, a lawsuit, I think, is just maybe I, I, I may not have my, my kind of uh, semantics and definitions right here. It's just kind of going into court and trying to get like an injunction. So, but yeah, but I guess it's not technically a court. And, yeah. Right. I don't, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. And it's the thing that, you know, if it would kind of go from here would probably get litigated through the, the state court system. Yeah. Unquestionably. Um, but yeah, that's where, that's where it's at now. What, what's your initial impression of this? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it is an interesting and positive move in as much as this is going to uh, litigate the question at some level is basically saying, you know, just just for listeners, uh, the 14th Amendment is the middle of the three civil, you know, post-Civil War amendments. And in the process of, uh, you know, kind of giving people due process and, you know, the, the, the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, they put in a thing saying, oh, yeah. If you were part of the Civil War, i.e., if you if you were involved in 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 leading an insurrection against the United States government, you're out. You can't be, you you can't be in the government anymore. And eventually, they kind of pardon people, and you know, blah 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 blah. blah. Uh, so what we're litigating here, like, does this apply? It didn't. It didn't say the Civil War. It was about. It was focused on the Civil War, but it basically said if you're involved in, you know, if you're an insurrectionist, you're out. You're kind of uh, you're you're out of the system. And so we're going to litigate. Is what happened last year one of those things? And that's good to litigate because, it, you know, we can dis, we can agree or disagree about whether this meets that constitutional standard. But we should be taking seriously that it is something like it, and this isn't some you know kind of wild-eyed interpretation of the Constitution. It's written right in there. So I think it's. I mean, you know, it's the challenge that people on the non-democracy destroying side of these questions always face is are we getting into a cycle of tit for tat that is going to that is going to be destructive and you know i kind of doubt he's going to be you know removed from the ballot and all that kind of stuff but i think it's good to litigate it let's get it out there let's let's get in a formal you know forum to talk about the insurrection and what was involved in it. So, you know, cheers to them. I think it's it's very it's uh, creative, and uh, you shouldn't try to overthrow the government. That's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I think the sticking point to me with the efficacy of the suit itself is that it seems that you would have to prove that he engaged in an insurrection to kind of win the claim and. That's hard for a number of reasons, including that it, there's some ambiguity about what body is in charge of proving that claim in the amendment. It kind of seems like Congress, perhaps, and maybe you could maybe you could make the argument that a, a court could decide that. But if there's one kind of lesson we've learned since the insurrection, it's that it's proven difficult to really prove that a lawmaker was engaged in the insurrection um, or that, you know, kind of comments at the rallies or stoking the big lie equals engaging in insurrection. You know, I think we've seen that particularly with attempts to kind of tie Trump as directly culpable for it. Um, so that to me seems the area where it would probably stumble. Um, but I kind of agree with you just in that so many people have kind of skated by who played a huge role in it. And I think some of that was because uh, in the second 
um, impeachment, you know, they, they made the executive decision not to go after the, the Republican lawmakers and really to focus on Trump as to not, you know, alienate the jurors, essentially. Right. But I think a, a byproduct of that decision is that some people who were almost, if not as culpable as Trump, have basically gotten away scot-free. Right. So I, I do think that the kind of, like you say, the litigation of this question of getting what he did into headlines, into the public consciousness of not letting people forget right before he runs for re-election again, just how gung-ho he was about this whole thing is a, a net positive whether or not this kind of legal bid works out. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that the context of the passage of the 14th Amendment is you're letting insurrectionist states back into the union. And so you're basically kind of saying at the front end, like, don't send don't send insurrectionists back to Congress. Those people are out. So I think logically it it speaks to the Congress itself not seating those people. Again, a lot of those there, there was a process of everybody event, you know, most people eventually got pardoned. Um but so Congress is the logical place, but the states clearly have a role because, you know, the Congress sets age limits for the different things. And um, if you show up at, as a 22 year old, say, hey, I just got elected to the House. Here I am. Congress would say, no, you, you, you can't. You're not eligible. But we also expect the states not to send those people. So we have all sorts of precedent. It's clearly for both. Right. Don't send us people we can't. They're, they both have a role. And I totally agree with you. We have this, um, a whole series of evidentiary and conceptual questions about, you know, what counts. But at some level, you want to say, like, it was an insurrection. You know, maybe you can say you just kind of said, you know, you just sort of like did a whoop whoop a few times and, and, said it was awesome and that doesn't count. But you want to get the definition straight because as we know, there is, um, you know, there's a lot of people saying, hey, it was just kind of a rally that got a little out of, got a little rambunctious and don't, you know, don't, don't have a cow as we used to say when I was like a, a high schooler or something like that. Right. And so we want to kind of litigate that. We want to, want to get it. We want to keep that into the mix keep that in the mix, not let it go down the memory hole, that something uh, dramatic and existential to the existence of the Republic happened. And, and to keep the focus on that. And um, if you want to explain how you weren't really involved, great, let's litigate that. Let's keep it. Let's keep it fresh. Right. OK, as we wrap up here, Josh, why don't you give us a little bit of a summary of kind of the the great COVID schools debate that's been happening on the pages of the Ed blog and, and with your interactions with readers. Well, I, so yeah, I, I've I've published a few things myself, and I've published a number of of letters responses. And um, you know, we have the Omicron wave. Uh, I think you know schools in this country for you know in some places a little less than a year, in some places well over a year, or remote. Everybody across the spectrum uh, agrees that sucked. The question is, is you know, a lot of things sucked during the epidemic. Uh, you know, it was maybe it was necessary, maybe it wasn't. But everybody's come out of that, or a lot of people have come out of that. All right, we're never going to do that again. It's it's we've got more drugs, we've got vaccines. We're never going to close the school schools again. We're never we're not going to go back to remote. There's a pretty broad consensus there, but there's also people who've made it like a doctrine, like you cannot even close for a day. And um, 
there's just a lot of people out there with incredibly strong feelings on both sides of this for understandable reasons. Um, and, you know, my, my one input on this is we shouldn't, we shouldn't be having doctrines. We shouldn't be having absolutes. This is a fluid thing. Everybody's trying to kind of figure things out. And just, you know, my experience as a parent in the New York City school system, in the, you know, the first week back after break, tons of, every, like everybody's out sick and, and, and everybody's quarantining and, every, and, and no one's even teaching in the class because, you know, half the kids aren't there. At a certain point, like okay, maybe maybe some districts are gonna are gonna shut down for three days just just to kind of get through this you know surge or something like that. And there's a lot of uh, you know, if I were on the other side of the political spectrum, I might call them you know kind of pointy headed elites with their PhDs working from home, you know, lecturing everybody about how schools can absolutely never close when it's like it's like a disaster area in these schools and not a disaster area. In the sense of, you know, for a vast majority of the kids, they're vaccinated, they're young, they're not having serious health problems. Uh, you know, the teachers can be vaccinated, so it's 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 not like it would have been a year and a half ago. But it's still a, a mess. It's just not a context in which you can really run classes for some period of time. And so the 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 responses that we've published have have really, I think, been looking across the across the spectrum. You have. Uh, you have a lot of educators who are just really, really pissed that this has all fallen on them to take this risk on themselves and, and they've been run ragged after two years. And you got people who need to go to work and if, if their kids are, they can't leave their kids at home and everybody's, everybody's pissed. And I think some people have somewhat better reasons to be pissed than others, but everybody's got some reason to be pissed. And that is kind of in a lot of ways, just the story of the, of the epidemic that that the society has just been run ragged and um everybody's got a lot of grievances and and most people have good reasons for having those grievances and and that's just the state of where we are and and i think for all of us there's a lot of there is a lot of tendency and i include myself um, among this there's a lot of tendency to kind of focus on some grievances and and enlist them on the on the policy side that you think is best but the reality is the society's run ragged and everybody's upset and that is why the whole society is under a lot of stress and everybody's having a hard time yeah okay let's take we're gonna take one question from greg um who sent us an article in the guardian that was basically a write-up of what this political scientist in canada who specializes in um you know kind of decaying democracies and, and rise of political violence, put out a, a warning to his countrymen saying that their neighbor to the South uh, could be in total civil violence and turmoil by 2025. Uh, and then by 2030, the United States could be under a full-scale right-wing dictatorship. Um, the thing that I thought was kind of funny about this not funny prediction is you know he basically said this is going to be really terrible for us Canadians <laughs> which I get it that's where he lives as an American I would say I read this and I was like well okay but <laughs> I think we Americans might be doing a bit worse um but you know one of the things he cites as the danger to Canada is that uh 
political prisoners could flee to Canada and they would have to deal with whether to extradite those people back to the grasps of, of it's uh, a very dystopian Canadian, America. Very, it's a very Canadian kind of problem, kind of a, yeah, a, very, exactly. a, very, a very small bore, uh, you know, kind of administrative low energy question. I'm not, I'm right. not I don't want to get on the case of my, of my, of our Canadian listeners and, and, and Canadian friends. I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta laugh. You, otherwise you'd cry, but it's the kind of thing where I think the real issue here is not that people who are incredibly plugged into politics don't see this danger. I think we do. I think it's made our jobs like unbelievably stressful in these past few years. But the danger that I see is that less politically in tune people don't seem to be internalizing this risk the way that people who watch politics every day are. I think that's represented in the polling, which keeps showing that Republicans are more concerned about, you know, a a denigrating democratic system than Democrats are, which I, you know, it's clearly a direct result of, of the big lie and everything. But I just think it shows that there's not this fear activation in Democratic constituents that there should be. And I think in some ways, it's a the reinforcing cycle of the Democratic leadership not really pounding the alarm because they can't get anything through Congress. So they've been tempering the message somewhat. And then it doesn't drip down to the constituents who then don't force the lawmakers to take it more seriously. And then also just kind of coming off what you just said, everyone is struggling during the pandemic, you know, no matter if you're a parent of young children or someone who doesn't get to work from home or someone who's lucky in almost every way during the pandemic and is still just kind of emotionally not doing great, you know, to, to some extent, everyone's suffering. And I think in that way, your your immediate circumstances probably take precedent over these still abstract threats, especially when the news cycle is just so depressing. I mean, I know that if I didn't work in it, I would probably take a break, wouldn't have my face pushed up against the glass every day. So I think all of that's probably playing in. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it it is always... It's always easy to uh, interpret or overinterpret the public mind. Um, you know, we had this big thing that happened last January sixth, and you kind of couldn't miss it. No, no one did. Everybody, everybody saw what happened, and and uh, uh, public opinion uh, reflected that. Um, a lot of us have uh, drawn conclusions about what could happen in the future based on that, and I think those conclusions have a lot of merit. Uh, most people are kind of living their lives, and um, you know, one of the things that COVID has done, as you say, has meant that all of us have a lot more life to live. And what I mean by that is just getting through the day requires a lot these days. And some of us more than others. I'm one of those, you know, incredibly pr- privileged people who've been able to kind of ride this out pretty much entirely at home for two years. But people have got a lot to, you know, people got a lot to deal with. And it's hard just to get through the day. And it's a, it's a, it's a bit hard to uh, focus on, uh, well, you know, what could happen in 2026 or what could happen in 2024 if this thing happens and that thing happens and the other thing happens. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that that prediction is, is going to come to pass. I think, you know, what we're, one of the, one of the things that we have been in the mix of, uh, bound to over the last five, six, seven years is 
seeing things in very totalizing terms. Democracy is going to, you know, is democracy going to end or not end? Uh, we, are we going to have a civil war or not have a civil, you know, these kind of things. And, and things things tend to work in more incremental ways. Um, and that can, you know, reassure people in some ways, but that also means things kind of creep up on you, right? I mean, I saw, I saw one of, one of the it's hard to go too long these days without seeing someone say, oh, the country's going to have another civil war, blah, 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 blah. Well, there's, there's no way you're going to have a symmetric geographical civil war because really the country isn't red states and blue states. It's big urban areas again and, and kind of the, the people who live past the inner suburbs, right? I mean, there, there's just no way you can, you can have an old, you know, kind of something like what we had in, in the 1860s. Um, but what you can have is just kind of a breakdown of civil order and, and more widespread violence, assassination, you know, kind of just, just a breakdown of the normal functioning of, 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 of things. And one of the things that means is that it can just kind of creep up on you. I mean, it's already kind of started. You know, we had this one terrorist plot where a bunch of sort of fanatical Trump supporters wanted to kidnap and assassinate the the governor of Michigan, right? I mean, we've had various instances of right-wing violence over the last couple years. Certainly people on the right will point to big public demonstrations uh, last, you know, in 2020. We can say accurately those were overwhelmingly nonviolent, but there was some violence. There were people, you know, doing violent things, and we had a we had a mob overrun the Capitol a year ago. So this isn't some binary thing that's out in the future. It's a trend, and 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 that I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but I guess you know th- these extreme scenarios should not blind us to the fact that we are daily making decisions that push us further down that road or kind of pull us back in the opposite direction. Uh, It's all incremental. It all builds on itself. And I don't know, everybody has to stay uh, engaged as much as they can. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, on that happy note, uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And uh, that's it for this episode. All right. Later. Thanks, guys. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 